0: I want you to know I checked to make sure I hadn't put crackers on the title of this. And you know who's to blame. Um, I have a question about um, animal characters on my Ask Me Anything page. And so I copied some of it into uh, the chat room, I mean into the description. And Kiki asked me this question um, about um, creating animal characters in um, my fiction. And... (laughs) The thing is is as much as I hammer on the creation of characters, um when it comes to actual people, I am an absolute lazy ass when it comes to the creation of animal characters. Um, <clears throat> which is stunning considering how often they end up in my work, you know, when it comes to the spirit animals and um my sentinel thick and um the snakes and the snowmate bond and quark, um and of course, Bramwell and Dr. Lowell was a complete accident. He just—he didn't happen on purpose. He wasn't plotted. Um, I fucking love Shirley Temple. Oh, someone is um, animal crackers in my soup in the in the chat room. Um, I fucking love animal. I, I, I love Shirley Temple. Anyways, I also like animal crackers. Just to be perfectly frank, um, this is about animal characters, not crackers. <laughs> I bought some um teddy bear graham crackers to put in a crust um of a cheesecake <sighs> um, putting um those little graham cracker teddy bears in my food processor to grind them up to make the the um the crust from my cheesecake was a Bit traumatizing, I have to admit. But don't buy Teddy grams. That's, that's all I'm saying. If you can't find chocolate graham crackers, just use regular golden crackers. Don't go Teddy Graham on it because you don't you don't know. It's a little messed up. It's a little messed up, I have to say. Teddy grams. Bramwell is an owl and he appears in Darkly Lowell. He is an owlet, actually, he's a baby owl. Um and he uh he ends up being um and while his inclusion in the story wasn't plotted, once I put him there, um, he does have a purpose. He he is a um Bramwell is a a little spot of innocence in Darkly Lowell. And his his appearances in Dr. Lowell um coincide, um or kinda I kinda pushed him in I I put him in scenes where there's been um emotional turmoil and he's just a point of innocence for Harry. He's he's very affectionate. Um he's got a big huge crush on crush on Harry and um really he's he's just he's super he's he's a baby. Um, Al and, and he's innocent and um, his love is very innocent and, and very um, um, you know um, so uh, but I don't put a lot of effort into creating my characters and when I read this question I immediately thought of vicious and that's Jilly James's um, um, spirit animal character Um, in the series titled Vicious, and I asked her if she wanted to talk about Vicious, and she said yes. Um, So she's going to be on the show as well tonight to talk about Vicious, um, who is um, an ocelot kitten that she has paired with Tony DiNozzo in a Sentinel story. Um, And I, you know, I did Keaton in my um, Tony DiNozzo-Steve McGarrett pairing, and, and Keaton... I put a lot of effort he was always going to be there. So he wasn't um a spur of the moment character like Bramwell or Cork. Um Cork was was a, a spur of the moment character cuz I missed my cat when I wrote it. Um <clears throat> I developed an allergy to cats that became so, so severe that I couldn't be around them without having an asthma attack. So I had to I had to rehome my cat and it was really upsetting. And so that that's where Cork came from. Um, but uh Keaton uh Who's named of the actor Buster Keaton? It's a kind of like a little um, nod to Tony's love of movies in canon. Um, <clears throat> I knew he, who he was going into the fit because I needed a spirit animal and I decided that, you know, um, what Keaton would be and how Keaton would react and behave and how he would um, display. Emotions for Tony that Tony keeps to himself, so whenever you see Keaton moving around in um ascendant, he's really just displaying what Tony is thinking and feeling just a mirror he's um he's- um he's mirroring Tony's internal emotional state, and so <clears throat> yeah. She says in her question that two of them have very she's talking about Rowena and um bremwell and quark, and she said two of them have vivid personalities without doing any talking. You need to read what what might have been again because quark talks shit in every scene he's in he's He's just not saying it out loud he's he he's doing some serious shit talking you just gotta pay attention <laughs> anyways. I'm gonna put Jillian, on. we're gonna talk about um, vicious and, char- and creating characters, um, animal characters. Did you put a lot of effort into creating vicious? Vicious um, more than more than most. Um, sometimes I put a lot of I put I've, I put a lot of thought into some characters that I wound up like never using, like um, Tony's crow spirit guide um, and, um Everything they said, Hitchcock. I um, I put a lot of kind of like cycles into him, and then I didn't do anything with him. <laughs> so I kind of I was like, so sometimes I kind of like, why why am I doing this? And so sometimes I don't put any effort into it at all. I just wait and see what kind of happens. But vicious, I kind of it, partially it was because I had this whole um, um thing about who vicious really is and and what she's there to accomplish and. Um and so I had to kind of I had to kinda of plan how that because she's she's she she kind of I kind of allude to it in Vicious that she's kind of a queen and she is. She's kind of the she's sort of she is the the lead female spirit in the on that plane of existence. Then you pack that into an immature brain, um of a tiny little kitten, um and what does that come out like? And so I spent a lot of time thinking about how she'd behave. And um, so yeah, so I spent a lot of time working on on what her her personality. She's kind of a kind of an odd mix of impulsive and imperious. And and bitch um, fight me. And yeah, and, <laughs> and and yeah, come on. Let's go. <laughs> and fight I dare me. you. Fight me. <laughs> <laughs> So in Heathen, she glare every time Gibbs, Gib, there's, in there's, Heathen, she, um, early on, she doesn't like Gibbs driving at all. Because the first time Gibbs takes a sharp turn, she goes flying across the cab of the truck. And she just is pissed as shit about that, which I know that's doing a horrible 60s author, but she just gives him this evil look, like, you fucking evil man. And so, and it's a little bit, she's... Um, you know, old soul, old soul in a vicious little body, and it's just, it just makes this odd combination of loving, playful, um, but kind of mean and not going to put up with shit, too. Um, and when she doesn't like somebody, she stalks them. So there's a scene um, in the sequel where the first time she meets Ziva, um, she just stares at her all the time. And like if Tony will let go of her, she likes to stalk her. <laughs> he was like, "Control your cat." Tony's like, "Kiss my ass. She's not my cat. <laughs> She's my spirit guys. She does what she wants to do." So yeah, so I did. Put, I did put a lot of um, thought into what I was going to do with her because of how what's going to happen with her if, as she. As she gets older and grows up and um um all the and all that kind of stuff and how how she's gonna evolve across the all across the, the arc of the series. Um so but her I put more work into than most of the um yeah, she definitely Azure says she has this picture of a butt wiggle of doom. She definitely has a little bit of a butt wiggle. Like I'm getting ready to pounce, here I go. <laughs> Boom. Um but a little bit of her also evolved once I started writing her. Because um, I actually hadn't picked her name um, until I got to that scene. And I just kind of impulsively decided that she was going to go off the rails. Um, I knew she was going to be upset. Because I had I plotted the scene where she initially meets the guy who is um, he's corrupting other guides and sentinels. Um I had I knew she was gonna be upset to be in the in, in the in the um, presence of somebody who was using the the, the energy that is was responsible that is that she's sort of the guardian of to do something negative with it. I knew she was gonna be upset as that's well how I plotted it that she was gonna be upset and kind of hard to control. Um, and then when I got to the scene I just wrote her going just unhinged. And so Tony picks her up, and I hadn't planned if He picks her up and calls her vicious. And I went, "Aha, name!" And I go, "Oh, story <laughs> title." Da-da. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> um, for me, you know, Quark was named after a, a, a Ferengi. Uh, and it, I know I have no excuse for that. But Rowena, I, I knew um, going in that she was going to be um, kind of a bridge for Harry and Hermione in a soulmate bond. Um, in that um, she, she's free to demonstrate his growing emotional attachment to Hermione when he's kind of constrained. um Just by propriety, and you know, just not really knowing her well. Um, So, in a lot of ways, when you see Rowena interacting with Hermione, she's just um, a presentation of of what um, Harry wants. He wants to be close to her. He wants to be with her, Um, and Rowena is free to be with her. So she does. She does whatever the hell she wants. And so, you know, she she has that freedom to do so. But like I said, and and, and Bramwell really is just a um he's a spot of innocence in dark little and and maybe even in some ways he's a representation of um the uh, uh of what they lost, the hope mm-hmm. of yeah. and that innocence and um their childhood which was destroyed during the first war to begin with um it's just you know he's just an, he's just a kind of example of that but he wasn't on purpose so my animal characters aren't always um on purpose and sometimes i plan them and um then they don't even like 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 you said him with um uh what'd you call him Hitchcock? yes don't even end up being any kind of um presence in the story at all Yeah, it's like, like you, you think you think you think you're going to do something with this, and then it's like, ah, mm, mm, no, it didn't work out. Like every sentinel, in Sentinels of Atlantis has a spirit animal. They all have names. I, you've only seen Rodney's. Yeah, it's so like in um, I put I didn't put I, I I named like I put um I put some basic information about the 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 spirit animals in um. I'm playing on the title of my own story, um, the one with Tony and Derek, and um, they're spirit guides. And you barely see, you see Tony a little bit in that story, and Derek's like, I don't think Derek was ever on camera. Um, and I put a little bit more work actually into Derek's spirit guide, and it just never worked out that his spirit guide, Tony mentions Derek's spirit guide once, um, but it just never worked out that he worked in the story, and I didn't want to wedge it in. Um, Wedge in a scene I didn't need to to do something with spirit guide, you know, so you know it, it, it's not like I feel like it, it it's not lost effort, you know, to me it's because it's just it's just it's there if I ever need it or I can leverage it elsewhere or you know if I ever do some of these some of these are set up like some of them some of these stories that I've done spirit guides with I have sequels plotted and this you know that information is all there if I ever need it so. Like I didn't do a lot with Hugin and Munin in all your Re- in all your reasons, um, they were more um, they were there, but I didn't do a lot with them. Um, they were more slated for um, the sequel because that's when they can speak because I have them able to speak to Tony in the in the sequels. So, but but yeah, you know, spirit animals, whether they're spirit animals, I mean, I I don't think I don't think I've written real animals much if at all. Um, And mostly the reason why I don't write real animals into um, stories is mostly because I write NCIS. um, Other than Harry Potter, where I tend to write snakes in to the story. But um, the reason I don't tend to write um, real animals in with Tony is because I just don't see him having a lifestyle that um, supports, that, that handles the responsibility of a pet. Uh, I think he would take the responsibility very seriously, and I don't see him being able to meet that respon the bur- the burden of that responsibility. Uh, so, I mean, he has a he has a goldfish, and that's about the level of responsibility I think he can deal with <laughs> with the kind of hours he works. You know, um, yeah. He
1: could, I mean,
0: if he had a neighbor he really trusted, he could probably have a cat. But you know, it's just it's it's just you know that's so, why so I just I just don't write that complication in um, for him usually forever I don't think. I may have plotted him in one story that he had a cat, but I don't think I ever wrote that story or finished it. But it, it, you can do interesting things with animals. Was so like in um the first story I wrote where animals were a big had a fairly big component was the journey home. Um because the spirit guides were kind of the bridge initially between Tony and Jack. Um Um, And and I definitely, I I actually, I think I knew more about Tony's spirit guide going in. I don't know why I didn't put much planning into Jack's other than what it would be until I got to that part in the story. And um, I got to that part in the story where Jack's spirit guide comes along and I decided he was going to be surly and... um, um, Kind of didn't like not like Jack, um, and that was a spur of the moment decision, and it worked out pretty well. Um, that that Gretzky did not like Jack, kind of even by the end he wasn't really fond of him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was really into Tony, but he wasn't particularly fond of Jack. Um, but it that was one where the, it, early in the story, that was how Tony and Jack, when they were separated. Um, How Jack was, and Jack wasn't aware of it, but that was how he was connecting with Tony was because he was on another planet and he was having a sensory meltdown and um, Tony's spirit guide came to him to help him. And so he's touching Tony's spirit guide and he's staying grounded. And so the, the animals were providing the bridge between them. And then when they were on the spirit plane, when they met on the spirit plane, um, that's how Tony recognized that Jack was his his sentinel. was that um, Gretzky came up and headbutted him. And so it's it's interesting to write animals in a scene. I will say one thing about writing animals, I'm sure that you've had this happen, is when you're writing animals in a scene, you have to keep up with them. You can't just forget that they're there. (laughs) Yeah. I have that problem with Vicious more than most, because she's tiny and Tony's supposed to be keeping up with her. Honestly, that's why Rowena ends up in Hermione's hair so much. (laughs) And why they're both capable of being invisible. So the reader never really knows they're in the scene, do they reveal themselves? And that way I don't have to worry about it. If I don't use them. That you, you, but you can assume pretty much. Unless he's fucking. Harry has a snake on him. In Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond. At all times. Godric is with him pretty much from the moment they bond. Unless he's having sex. And I can't even say for certain. That he hasn't been on Harry's neck. During sex. <laughs> it's just. Godric is always there, um, and it's just—it's a thing in in that particular fic, and um, uh, it's just the way it is. But it, because they're invisible, I don't have to worry about them unless I want them to be displayed. You know, so that was something that I decided early on in that story about how that how I would handle Rowena and Godric because I knew um, I plotted Godric in. He he was always going to be there. He um his entrance into the thick is a um it's just a little window into the kind of parcel mouth um that is in the world at large. You know that um to um just to kind of wake hermione up to the to the knowledge that she can't trust every parcel mouth the way she's come to trust harry um and that's how I chose to deliver that lesson it's I think animals can be such interesting vehicles for that kind of thing. One of my favorite animals is soren um and he appears very briefly in um uh i forgot the name of my own shit't that no soren he is the black dragon in my in my harry potter oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. hermione ranger uh, duality he's he's in duality and he has like two lines and he's my favorite because who the fuck cares? He don't. <laughs> <Your favorite laughs> he's my favorite. Your favorite. Yeah, he's my favorite. And he has like two lines. Although I am actually terribly fond, I am writing a story called The Black Dragon, um where Zeer spends a great t- deal of time on Earth as a drake. I um, mean, that's a miniature dragon, and he is um uh invisible most of the time and he's sarcastic and, and vicious and um he's kinda guiding Harry through a uh through uh a time travel experience where they've gone back in time because that's my favorite trope. Um and I don't pretend otherwise. And um you know, he's got a hit list and he's making Harry kill people. Not making, but encouraging. <laughs> and uh they uh And he's just a little sarcastic bastard. And he often appears in this little black dragon form. And there's a scene where Hermione is petting him like he's a cat. And Harry is so offended because she is actually treating the god of sorcery like a cat. She's petting him. And he's all freaked out about it. Um, Because he doesn't (laughs) treat Zier this way at all, ever. And here she is treating him like a cat. And... um, Later, uh, she gets sarcastic with Zir when he's in his human form, and he's all like, "I can't even let you pet me." <laughs> but yeah, he talks. He talks like a person, not like just not in parcel tongue or like a snake. He he talks in actual words, and so Hermione has interacted with Zir before, but always in his dragon form. So the first time she sees him as a grown ass man, she's a little startled. <laughs> Where's my little dragon? <laughs> Get back in your little dragon form. <laughs> and I do it's consistently quite... in my mind cast Hugh Dancy as Zeer. Yeah, I, I you you've totally corrupted my brain on that one. Because like anytime I want to do Lord of Magic in a story, it's just it's there. It's it's in my you got, head. You can have him. He's yours. I'll share. <laughs> it's complete headcanon accepted. You know, it, it's <laughs> casting corruption. I don't know what you call that. It's like Patrick Shepard <laughs> is Vigo Mortensen. that's just the way it is. But yeah, Hugh Dancy is my Zier, and um he uh, and but I I really I really enjoy that particular story because um Zier is such an interesting presence and um even in his little dragon form he's he's just a complete asshole. And I particularly um, see him as a in a particular picture and I just found it. i it was one of the first ones I found too. It was like right there. Hmm. Isn't he pretty? Yeah. But that isn't my favorite one. My favorite's one where he's kind of, like, dressed up goth, and he has his hair all put up. He's got um, um, eyeliner on. I don't think I've seen the eyeliner one. That could become my new favorite if you find me eyeliner. But I'm always down for eyeliner. Yeah, I got it. Hold on. He's kind of all punk and shit. I don't know. I just... I like it <laughs> Now because I have cast Tom Hiddleston as um, Zale he'll never be anybody else In my Harry Potter fic I actually have An original idea for Zale but um, I don't know Quite what to do with So I don't know Be interesting to see if I do anything with that in my brain, in my brain, but yeah, that's my favorite Hugh Dancy picture right there because he looks like I'm gonna fuck your shit up. when it comes to risk, the funny thing about animals is one of the things I noticed with Vicious and I had this temptation I, I almost succumbed to it in Vicious and I, I don't I don't think I did but I'm, I might have I have to go back and look at the finished product to see because sometimes we aren't honest with ourselves about what we did um, there's something about writing with animals that there's this especially if you've worked a lot with them and they have interesting personalities is to write more with them and I tend to not Want to put scenes in that don't serve a purpose, and yet there's this inclination to want to write more scenes, <laughs> like just to put the animal in, um, and so they wind Sometimes up being like insanity. you kind of overwhelm a story. Yeah. Like, um, what's that story with NCIS where Tony gets a puppy and he ends up being an agent? Um, agent Zuma. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Agent- I, I that the, that's in the that's the bourbon and aspirin verse, right? Yes, and all I remember i mean I remember I obviously remember the story well, cause I, I I've read it, but Agent Zuma popped right into my brain every single time that that's what I call that story Agent Zuma <laughs> That's how it say to my private bookmark so I can find it <laughs> Well, it's a good thing I named vicious after vicious because you know I have a feeling that if I had named it something else, it wouldn't have been what we all called call it, it vicious, yeah, everybody would have called it vicious anyway. Because I do think sometimes some animals do take over the story. I do think Vicious is one of the times that Vicious would have taken over the story. Um, but she's, she's a total scene stealer. Um, I think Bramwell is a scene stealer. Oh, um, he is. And I, and I do him to... He, he's more of a mood lightener. Because that's a really heavy every story. Time, every time Harry tells him to go back to the alley, I'm like, Harry, stop it. Stop <laughs> mean to that baby. <laughs> What's the with you? <laughs> and he is a baby barn owl. Have you seen a barn owl? Well, they got a fucking heart for a face. <laughs> they are. They're so adorable. <laughs> oh. But um, yeah, I chose the barn owl because they're so pretty. They're beautiful. I was like, I I to. Yeah, that that has to be the. Family of owls that are living in the in the tower, but um, I really didn't intend on um, Bramwell um, stealing the show. (laughs) But sometimes it happens. Yeah, because there's this this, this kind of this this impulse to um, write scenes you don't need to do things. Sometimes, at least for me, with the animals. Um, Just because they're fun And then it's like Well I don't need that I can't put that in Um, That's just vanity I don't need that scene I don't need that scene I don't need that scene And I think that's probably One of the reasons Why I haven't You know Given Tony a pet I think I would go I think I would lose my mind (laughs) One thing that I would say about that is that I give myself a lot more permission in fan fiction to have vanity scenes than I do in original work. I'm a little more, I'm a little more free with myself. You know, like, oh yeah, go ahead, have fun. (laughs) That's where that's whole ridiculous fic i've got going on in my brain right now where harry potter gets raised by bilbo baggins when i said specifically that i was so mad about they're not big enough there weren't any female characters in the original hobbit that i was always going to write rule 63 bilbo except i turned around and wrote, and i, I was like okay can i make this fella and i'm like no i can't uh harry gets raised by bilbo baggins that's just that's just what happened that's his ada i, I couldn't do it with Bella for some reason. I don't. I think because there is um, a difference between fathers and mothers. Mm-hmm. And Bilbo let Harry go back to his original world to follow his destiny. Bella would have been like, hell no. Let me get my shit. <laughs> if you're going, I'm going with you. <laughs> but Bilbo let him go because he's a man. And you have to you know, do your manly duty thing, you know, like men do. But his if, if, if it had been a mom, she'd have been like, let me get my shit. Hold on. Don't you go without me. I'll fuck you. I'll kick up. Just right there, Harry Potter. <laughs> you know? And Bilbo slash Bella had to be in bag in for the quest to take place and so I was like it it can't be Bella it it has to be Bilbo um, because Bella wouldn't let him go by himself does that make sense because it made sense in my brain it makes perfect sense it makes perfect sense that I, I agree with you completely that um um that Bella would have gone with him. So Bilbo wanted to go, but he also knew that it was, you know, about duty. And but moms ignore that shit. I'm like, oh fuck that. <laughs> I don't care what your duty is. Let me let me comb your hair. <laughs> have you brushed your hair today, Harry Potter? Um, so yeah, there's just a big difference um, between the two, I think. And so, um, yeah. Bilbo raised Harry Potter, and now Harry Potter's back in the Middle-Earth, and he's kind of pissy and not really on board with Bilbo's bromance with the King of Dwarves. <laughs> like, who the fuck are you, dude? There's a scene where he finds out that his his Ada has gone off to get blueberries, and Thorin has gone with him, and he turns to Smallin and says, "What on Middle-Earth could they possibly have in common? <laughs> And I got so tickled, I had to stop writing, because <laughs> he's just so frustrated with the whole idea of, of his of, of his little hobbit father um, being romanced by this dwarf. <laughs> he can't do a damn thing about it because, you know, they're adults, and it's just it's really it's really getting on his last nerve. And it's just it's it's funny. It amused me to write it. What right on Middle Earth? Because they possibly have in common. <laughs> <coughs> well, that's my id fic. And I didn't even know what id fic was, but now that I had, that I know, um, I've I've indulged. You found out what it was, and then you just r- jumped right into it. Boom! <laughs> Cannonball right into id fic. <sighs> And unfortunately, I have all these little crack ideas that kind of pop in my head about it as well. You know, like, um, just ridiculous shit. Oh, I did come across a really fascinating premise. That the One Ring is actually a Horcrux. Interesting idea. And I made the worst baby no-face over that. Well, when you think about it. And I thought, okay, if he had to kill a magical person to create this, who did he kill? Well, the blue and the green wizard disappeared. That's canon Tolkien right there. No one knows Mm -hmm. what happens to the blue and the green wizard. There's the white and the gray. There was Sauron and there was Radagast the Brown. And the blue and the green wizards both disappeared. So I was like I was playing with that idea and how that would work and the one ring is is sentient and it's corruptive and it um it just it just made all kinds of sense because Sauron was killed but yet he still lingers just like Voldemort was killed and yet he lingered. So it just it just kind of kind of clicked for me in my head have a little moment of of wow that really works I really like that. And so that's what I did with that. I'm really interested in that whole premise. It's it's really um, kind of fun. I think it's a fascinating idea because the, the idea that Sauron was destroyed by the Ring being destroyed lends a lot of credibility to the whole idea because he hadn't yet gained a, a body. Maybe he didn't have enough magic to gain a body. Because I, I also came upon the premise of um, small magics in Middle-earth and um, why the hobbits do what they do and the dwarves do what they do and the elves is that they, they're all a little magical. Not magical enough for a focus or to be a wizard or a witch, but they're all a little magical. It's just really interesting to, to kind of play with that in my head and to, to play with that premise. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do with it beyond what, what I have done with it. You know, it's just a big one. Snarkfest. Although I do really enjoy the idea of Harry using that spell on the big Durin statue that McGonagall used on the statues at Hogwarts. <laughs> Can you see that big statue just stomping on orcs? Wouldn't it be great? That'd be hysterical. Like, dudes, do you mind if I borrow this big guy? I'll put him back. <laughs> I'll fix him better than new when I get done. He'll have a great time. I'll have a great time. He won't get hurt. <laughs> I'll fix his nose. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> it's just amusement. I can't even blame Azure. I'd like to though. I'd like to blame her for my for my crack ideas, but I can't. You can't even blame her for Voldemort's um three ring circus. <sighs> I can blame her for Voldemort's three ring circus because that shit wouldn't exist if she hadn't done what she did. That was just self defense. Re- <laughs> It may have been self-defense, but it was not inspiration. (laughs) All I'm saying is that the other Death Eaters had let the genie drive the car. They wouldn't have all got killed. It it wasn't too much to ask. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And the genie can be a tightrope walker if she wants to be. (laughs) She can be anything she wants to be. (laughs) Because the last person who told her no died. she can be a fucking, fucking trapeze artist if she wants to be. Don't drop her. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be here, her partner.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, sorry. That's probably too much of an in-joke. Sorry. Um, I, did, I did this whole thing with Azure um, in our private chat where she was talking about something that really, really upset me. And so I... I designed this whole three ring circus where Voldemort decided he was tired if I took over the magical world, so he made a circus instead. And, uh, Snape was. There was a lion tamer, and I can't remember if that was Snape or if that was Malfoy. Um, and one of them had monkeys, trained monkeys. Um, and Pettigrew had to run on a wheel. And Bellatrix and Narcissa were trapeze artists. Um, and the genie had the rest of the Death Eaters, and they were all clowns. <laughs> and, wait, well, I thought you mentioned the genie the clown in another yeah. podcast. Oh, but anyway, I I, could, so I, I hadn't been in chat in a while, and I come in, and she's talking about the genie the clown, and we don't <laughs> talk about clowns. Like, that's just not a thing. I was like... <laughs> Have I been transported into an alternate reality where we talk about clowns and why the hell would Najini be a clown? So, it was it was a, it was a moment. My chat room froze up. I had to reboot. No it would not. No it would not. I was like, "Why is the chat room not moving?" And I realized that it had actually um, frozen up on me, so I missed most of the chat. <sighs> yeah, yeah. She killed all the other clowns because they wouldn't let her drive the car, and then she was the only clown, <laughs> and she got to drive the clown car. <laughs> <laughs> I've been like, "Sure, go ahead and drive." I just, I've just been like sitting there waiting to see what happened. Oh, Snake <laughs> drive the car. I'll be in the stands. Embrace the crack. (laughs) And from that, and I don't know how, but sometime (laughs) during that conversation, and I really do not know how, I had this idea that when Lily Potter um, sacrificed herself, she actually used her magical power um, to create a Portal into another dimension, and Harry Potter um, was was transferred to Middle Earth when Voldemort tried to kill him. Portal opened up, dropped him blanket and nappy right <laughs> right into Gandalf's lap, and Gandalf took him to the Shire to make to ask <laughs> Belladonna to raise him only to find that Belladonna was dead and that Bilbo was there and um, so he left Harry Potter with Bilbo um, and Bilbo raised a wizard and um, the story picks up where they've entered Rivendell and um, Bilbo finds out that that Harry has returned to Middle Earth and um, uh, Harry finds out that his dad um, while he was gone fighting a war, um, decided it would be a great idea <laughs> to go steal a rock from a dragon. <laughs> he is not it at is best point. It is never a good <laughs> idea to steal a little idea. rock from a dragon. But all that came about sometime in the middle of the Death Eater Circus. And I i don't know. There's no I couldn't explaining. tell you what, what, what led to... I... I I got nothing. I I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I read the whole thing. I don't know that I could explain the steps. It just it just happened. It just happens. These things happen. Yes. Clown the genie spawns. Harry Potter raised by Bilbo Baggins. It just happens. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the idea of of. Um, of, of of Harry being raised by Bilbo in in the Shire and um uh, there's a line where he where he's talking about creating a, a ward to protect the Shire from from people, and Thorin said I thought they were kind of like you know, not kind to you and he's like they might be judgmental little assholes but they're my judgmental little assholes and if anybody's gonna mistreat them it's me. That's right, and if he was going to mistreat you, buddy, it's going to be me, so hold still. (laughs) It probably was a big circle because ideas um, like that, you know, um, come from a very – organic place, and you can't really put a, a, a definition on, on how that happens, and um, a lot of times, um, when it comes to character development, um, it's the same thing, you know, like uh, you'll say, okay, I'm, I'm going to have this character, and um, this is who they are, and, you're, and you write all that down, and then you, and then you get them in a scene, um, and you're moving them through the events that you that you've decided that you're going to have, and the events um Oftentimes when I'm writing a character, when I who the character is. I tend to put myself in their position to kind of understand where they're coming from as they approach different events and how this happens and what's going to happen. And does this hurt? Um, does this make me mad if I was Tony in this situation? How would I react? And no, I'm not saying it's a self insert. There's a difference. This is about empathy. Um, and empathizing with your character, and and figuring out what their emotional estate state of being would be—not estate, but state of being—would be in in various circumstances, and and creating a rational response to to external motivations. And your external motivations are the things that happen to your character outside of their control, um, and how they respond to those, and What goals are spawned from those external events are their internal motivations. And some people seem to have a problem figuring out the difference between those two. So I keep talking about it, (laughs) hoping you'll get it. (laughs) Hoping it'll get there. The difference between external and internal motivation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really? Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I had someone ask me once if um, I wrote my plot after I'd figured out my external motivations. What? I was like, honey, (laughs) the external motivations are my plot. What? (laughs) Those are my plot events. The external motivations. And the internal motivations and desires and all that stuff is is the response anyways yeah i had that question once i don't even know where it might have been in real life um i don't even sit sit down (laughs) go sit in the corner it gave me such a headache just a question (laughs) just a question you write, G- G- G. you write your external motivations after You write which 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 order was it? Did you did you write your external motivations after your plot? Yeah. No. Other way around. Other way around. Do you write your mo- plot after plot your external motivation? Plot after. Do you, yeah, you plan that out. I yeah. can't. I, it's just, um, it's so bizarre. I can't even tell look, you. To see if it I have already it told you guys what came first. <laughs> you told us chicken to the egg. I I wasn't sure I believed it, but you told us. What else could it possibly have been? I, I, I don't know. If you have a theory, I'm I'm willing to listen to your theory. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't make a point to not have theories. <laughs> <laughs> so, my, I have to, this is just an aside. My mom calls me today, and she this is actually right before the podcast, and she says, I want to gift you a book. And she says, I think it's the best romance I've ever read. And I said, okay. She said, we let me gift you this. And I said, okay. She said, will you read it if I give it to you? Because this is, this is the problem, right? Is people, I get books all the time. She's like, will you read it? And I was like, the best book you've ever read. She said, yes, it's the best romance I've ever read. And I was like, it's not first person, is it? And she said, well, it is. And I said, the best book you've ever read. She said, yes. I was like, all right. It's not alternating po- points of view, is it? And she said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, it's not one character's point of view and then another's, right? It's not going back and forth. It's one character's point of view." She says, "No, I think it's both characters' point of view." I was like, "Oh my God, you just doubled the macgripter." I said, "It's not first. It's not present tense, is it?" She says, "You know, I think it might be." <laughs> I was like, "Oh my God, it's the horror trifecta: first person, present tense, alternating POV. Are you trying to kill me?" The best book you've ever read, really. It's first person, present tense, off to POV. will you read it? I said, I I will try to read it. <laughs> I'm I saying no. Try. No, I, I will, will not try. read it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm well, also I mean, I curious. Went, I went and I read, because she reads a lot of male, male stories. I mean, a lot. Probably, I would guess she probably reads 30 a week, at least, novels. Um and like this is, she calls it this is the best one she's ever read. I was like Whoa dude Um What is this story? And so I went and read the summary of it and I was like shit. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated. I want to read this story, but how could it be alternating first person point of view, present death? I can't deal. What the hell? Are the POVs um labeled? They are, from what she told me. Yeah, from what she told me that they're labeled. I haven't looked at it yet. I haven't gotten it yeah. yet. But I was like, uh, I guess the story, she said, the way she described the story, so I'll tell you the plot, is that it, it's a story about um, two writers. Worse, it's two writers. That's one thing she wrote about is that um, she told me about Is it, that it's a little bit more cerebral than a lot of the stuff that she used. cuz I know you don't usually like a, a lot of, like, cerebral musing. But she said it's two writers. And they're working on writing. The story's about them trying to find their writing and find some. So it's one writer. So you've got a, a gay male-male writer in the story who's doing well in his craft. And you've got this other writer who is, um, his, story, his latest book is bombed. So he decides the way he's going to approach getting his career back on track is to move into the male-male market, even though he's not a gay guy, right? He's a straight guy moving into the male-male market. I'm his, already hating this. So this gay guy takes him under his wing to mentor him into this. Apparently they fall for each other. Anyway, she says this is a great story. It, conceptually, there's, but when I read the, read the reviews and I read the, what the author had to say about it, because the setup, when she described it to me, the setup didn't sound good, but then I went and read what the author said about it, and I read what the other reviews said about it. I was like, oh, my God, this sounds interesting. Uh, I was like, but oh, my God, you've hit all these things. There's all these the things you don't like. I don't like I was like, all right, I'll try to read it. <laughs> I really don't like gay for you stories, but also I'm curious. So this is like, it's it, it's got four strikes for me because gay for you is like. Really? I don't like gay for you either. I don't like gay for you <laughs> either. So, um, all the way it's presented is like this one character's, uh, it's not so much like gay for you, it's more like his. It's like his eyes are opened as he moves into this different community or something like that, or he just. I don't know. It's like he changes. I, the, the way it's described is a little bit different than more like Gay For You, is the way she did. Because I actually specifically asked her about that, and she said it doesn't come out like that. But um, so it, it did, it like hit all of these things that I just don't like, and I was like, I would say no on so many of these points, a hard no. And then I said, wait a minute, it's not a nonlinear narrative, is it? <laughs> and she said, no. I said okay because I could. I could. That, that would be one strike <laughs> too many. That too far. <laughs> That'd be one too many. So I'll tell you about a nonlinear narrative. I I binge watched Scott and Bailey on um, Hulu. And I am really digging the shit out of this, story, this this series. Right? It's a basically a British Cagney and Lacey. Anyway, I'm really digging it. I'm all in it. It gets to the fourth season. And the opening scene of the first episode, like, what happened? And so she, something happens, and it's really dramatic, and what the fuck is going on? What is this? And then it says, 24 months earlier, and I went, fuck me, an, an episode? But it wasn't just a goddamn episode. It was the entire fucking season. You don't find out the Ramifications of that first five minutes of the opening episode of the season until the last fucking episode of the season. Mm. But, they, but, they, but they had me by the short and curly's girls. <laughs> I had to find out what happened. But I have to tell you, if the whole if the series turned this way, I would have I would have never binge watched it because I hate that. I hate a nonlinear um That's why I can't watch Quantico. Yeah, that got, my my got, my like ultimate. i was just thinking about it. Oh, I see. I would have said that, my, like the trifecta, the tri, I mean alternating first person point of view is pretty much. I would have said that was my kryptonite. I've gotten around it in a couple of instances. Um, there've been a couple of stories I can think of where I've read it, and I've understood why the author did it, and I enjoyed it. It is the extreme exception to the rule, but nonlinear. Narrative drives me batshit insane. There, I, there's, there's occasionally like a time. There's, there's occasional, where like, it's like the author's telling two stories and they overlay them, where you've got a story running in the present tense and, and, and the, like a different set of characters story running in the past. And if they're overlaid really well, it will still annoy me, but I can kind of deal with it. I don't like it, but I can deal with it. But they have to, each, each storyline has to be running linearly. Do you know what I mean? That's, like, the most I can tolerate. But when you start – I was trying to read a story one day where the, the the present narrative wasn't even linear. It was like skipping backwards and forwards, and then you had multiple people – multiple storylines in the past that were also not running in a linear fashion. And I was like, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with this. I can't deal with it. I can't I, – why would he be – I know. It just makes me crazy. I, I, I know people love it. I know people think um, so people think start in the middle means start in the middle and go back and then tell the rest of the story in a flashback. That's not what start in the middle means. <laughs> it really isn't. Oh. It's the first thing what? you have to do is tell, if you, if you, like, two paragraphs and then you start a flashback or start telling something that happened six weeks ago, it's like, oh, then start six weeks ago. I just, oh. Are uh, you Start in the middle with me, yeah, really means where things are changing. Give me something um for me i I like to pick a moment of change or a really like in the middle of a character having an epiphany, yeah, a little shift. Always starts for me. It always is about where something major is about to change for the character. Something, it, whether it, whether it's it, whether it's an emotional thing, or like you said, or it's um, somebody's going to die, or it's going to be there's something. Is there's, there's going to be something? Something has to shift. That to me is the middle. Because if you start four and days mental, emotional, the physical. Shift, yeah, something's going to change. If you start four f- days days before the shift, and you have all these background scenes and you know, that's going to bore the just, fuck out of your reader. People are just sitting there going, people, what people are doing is they're sitting there waiting for something to happen. And with every successive scene that happens without anything happening, they're going, what's happening and when's it going to happen? You want to put your reader, reader, reader in a place where they're playing a little bit of catch up, but not so catch up they get frustrated. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. hope so. Rose says it would be like doing the death scene and jumping back to his childhood. But people do that. People do that. They start at the death and then jump back to the childhood. People do that all the time. Um, now, actually, there's like there's like one... I think of one movie that I kind of enjoyed that was sort of like that. Um, do you remember the movie DOA? No. I mean, so I remember it existing, was, but I don't remember the actual content. It's been a long so this time. Movie, in this movie, this guy... Um, he knows, he finds, that he's. He, you're at the point in the movie where he's about to die. And the point of the movie is, is that he he knows at some point in the movie that he's, he's been poisoned or something. I don't remember, I remember what, I'm assuming it's poisoning. But he's been, he's been either infected in something or poisoned or something or whatever, and that he's going to die. And so the whole movie is about him looking for the person who killed him. So he's alive looking for the person who's, killed him. So that's sort of but the movie starts at the point of where he's about to die. And then it goes back to when he was okay, to when everything started. So it kind of starts at this really tense moment where he's figuring out what happened and then it jumps back. But a lot of movies start that way. Um but it's one jump back, right? So it's dramatic moment jump back way back in time and the whole whole story progresses forward in a linear fashion to that dramatic moment where he's confronting the person who killed him and you figure everything out and then he dies, right? Okay. So, yes, it's Dennis Quaid. Um, at least I think it was Dennis Quaid. So, anyway, so I can kind of deal with that. I don't really care for that. I find it to be kind of, I guess that maybe I find it to be overused device an overused narrative device is where you start with this that it's like ratcheting up to me it feels like building up artificial tension to start with this huge dramatic moment and then jump back 10 years and give me you know 150,000 words of story leading up to that moment but i can i've seen it um and that can kind of deal with that, but the stuff that just skips around just drives me batshit insane. It just, I just, my brain just can't deal with it. But, D, but that was an example, but DOA, the reason why DOA popped in my mind was because that was an example of where um, we were talking about start in the middle. It started with, she talked about starting with um, somebody's death and jumping back to their childhood. Well, that was what DOA kind of did, was it was starting with his death and then jumping back to how he died. Well, the, I think for me, the most, the one that pops into my brain every time nonlinear show pop, it, is mentioned is Pulp Fiction. Oh, Pulp Fiction. That's, that's the kind of nonlinear I can't stand. I cannot it stand it. I, I had to watch it maybe three times because it really bothered me that I wasn't getting it all. So I, I watched it three times to get everything. Of course, I had to fast forward that one scene after the first time yeah, I watched it because I could scene, not. Yeah. And, yeah, the scene. Every, every time um, I watched it, fast fast to it.
1: I didn't even want
0: to Oh shit, okay, okay. Sorry Bing. sorry, Oh God Bing, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. no. <laughs> this isn't even a prison movie. Why is this happening? <laughs> yes. But that kind of that kind of thing where things are kind of skipping around and you have multiple people's storylines and they're not happening in a you know, and a character who died at the beginning of this movie is alive it, it it's just it really throws me. It's not I it's not that I can't keep up. It's just it's just not I don't find it relaxing and entertaining. I find it frustrating, so I I tend to avoid it. But I know I know a lot of people who love it. They love that kind of thing, so but when somebody recommends something to me that's non-linear narrative, I just kind of go, "New. No, 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 no." The Time Traveler's oh. Wife. I have never gotten through that book. Oh, I did really, read, I did read a really fascinating AU where um, it was a Hobbit one, and Bilbo was the time traveler, and he basically, because of the way he time traveled, he stayed with Thorin his whole life. Huh. That's interesting. Uh, um. He. I mean, it was at one point he even traveled. Um, back to before smog um, took Erebor. It's really interesting. Um, it's good, and I, I it was just really interesting. I, I was trolling, for, I was trawling for Fick, and I was like, oh okay, I'll check it out because I was I want something that was complete, and so but I'd always had a problem with that book, and I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to read this, but I'm going to try, and it was really fascinating. Is called an of an arcane binding by S- Salvia G. Let's see, I'm gonna, It's forty. It's forty-four thousand words. I'm gonna get you a link. Um, it's a really interesting story. I I um. I enjoyed it, but if you have a problem with um. Nonlinear storytelling. It might put you off. Because I thought it was going to put me off. Because of the way he time travels. Sometimes you'll see Bilbo. um, Like. For instance. After Bilbo dies. He still shows back up. Because he's still time traveling. A younger version of him. Comes forward in time. To be with Thorin. After the old version of him dies. Kind of thing. And so you see. Bilbo. At all these various ages with Thorin, from a young boy to an old man, and um, and then like Bilbo find like it's just you, you, it's interesting. That's why that's how I put it. Um, But don't feel compelled to read it if if that kind of thing would would put you off. It's it's, um, but it is an interesting is an interesting story and I, I enjoyed it um, but that's something I would normally read because it does have a non say it, non-chronological non-linear. non-linear, non-chronological it's, you know, that's how she labeled it because um, the story is pretty straightforward but Bilbo moves in and out of it <laughs> in a non-straightforward manner, you know, because he's moving the whole time, He's he's time-traveling um, it's a very interesting and um uh entertaining read. I'm looking at this list of movies that have a nonlinear narrative, and um, I'm like, haven't seen it, haven't seen it, haven't seen it haven't seen that. <laughs> I'm like, nope, 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 I'm like even in movies, I avoid it, and the few that I have, I was like I remember being put off by the nonlinear the parts of it that were nonlinear um I'm like, just tell, because I remember, Amy, even when I was young, I'd be like, just tell the story in order. I don't like it either. I mean, it, it, it puts me off. It, it especially puts me off in the written word. And you said earlier that um, you'll give an author one flashback. I will give an author one very well done, important flashback.
1: But if you're flashing back
0: for no fucking reason, click. (laughs) Come on now. Yeah, I, I was reading something one day where there was a scene. There was a scene. The next, there was a scene break. There was the next scene took place like six hours after the end of the scene. One paragraph. One paragraph into that scene that six hours later. There was a flashback, labeled flashback, that flashback to the events at the end of the prior scene. I closed my, my whole browser. face just twitched. My whole face just twitched. <laughs> I was I'm going to the, ending you... the scene. Why end the pro scene tip. if you... Serious pro tip. If you have to label your flashback flashback, you don't deserve to write a flashback. Yeah. That too. And also, but don't I just, use the word scene break to, to break a scene. Right. And, and this is probably kind of unpopular, but I've always believed it to be true. If you cannot transition from one point of view to another without doing a POV break, stay in one POV. There is nothing necessary about a fucking POV break. I hate it. I fucking hate it. I do. I hate it. It drives me bonkers. Yeah, it's just if you if if you have events that you're gonna write in a flashback in the next scene, so if you're what's so sorry about that to me is it'd be like we're we're having a conversation and I'm telling people I'm relaying the conversation. You know, we're you're doing you're having the scene and you stop the scene. And then in the next scene, you have a conver- you have a flashback to the events after the scene you just stopped. Why wouldn't you just continue the scene you were in? It just is, it was it was it was such a bizarre construction in the narrative to do it that way. Um, and it was like to just insert this one paragraph of angst of this character angsting about. Of angsting mightily before flashing back to those events that happened immediately preceding the events we had just read, immediately following the events we had just read, that I just was like, really? I think that just- honestly, honestly, but it becomes a moment of author vanity or pretension. Because you all know, you all know that one writer who's just pretentious as fuck, who thinks they're the next Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. Well, I mean, flashback. Technically, when flashbacks, flashbacks are interesting because technically, if I were to write, um, Tony walked outside, and the smell of hot rain hitting the concrete um, reminded him of um, being a kid. In summer in the Hamptons, and his mother calling him in for dinner. That's technically a flashback, because that moment when you and, and that's that when you slip into a vivid memory of the past like that, that is that te- qualifies as a flashback. So there's a lot of different ways to construct flashbacks, and a lot of different ways to work them into the narrative. Now you can also have flashbacks like a PTSD type flashback, where you have like or like a dream sequence where it's something that's very kind of jarring and those could all serve their purpose but just but just to cover something that um but I, I guess sometimes i feel like that these flashbacks are put together to create artificial tension um putting things together in random order to create to, to amp up tension and it's just it it comes across as contrived to me and it's just one reason why i avoid it One thing that I found really annoying in myself is when I was constructing Lol because of the way I had it plotted and because I was restricted to a single point of view, I had to use memories of other people, and um, I had the elves harvesting them, and they ended up going into a pensive in, in a great in a. In a a lot of ways that it was structured the way a flashback would be structured. But I had no choice because I was restricted to that single point of view for the challenge, which I'll never fucking do again. Um, And it was really annoying to have to shove this information and what was these outside events into the narrative um, in only one single way. Like, originally it was like, okay, Dobby's going to tell them what he saw. Okay, okay, it happens over and over again. And so suddenly, I was really fucking tired of Dobby telling them what he saw. So you, I had to, like, rearrange it and do it a, a different way and display it in these memories, which I wasn't particularly fond of. <clears throat> and so by the time I got to the point where that they were, you know, having their little competition about killing Death Eaters, I just gave them a scoreboard because I was, I was done with the memories. Thanks, Morgan. yeah. But, I I really appreciate that. Um I agree, just that was um, a lot of fun. Because I was done with those memories at that point. I'm like, fuck it. They they get a scoreboard. <laughs> That's how the reader is keeping up with who's dead and who's alive in um in that particular fic. Um as far as the elves go, I'm um, killing de- death ears in the background. Um and the scoreboard is is how you're keeping track of that as, as a reader um without me having to do um Memories and a pensive, and you know the house housewives reporting on their murder spree. You know, But, you know, I read a story. I have to read a story where um, the 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 protagonist um, she had psychic dreams, and so those dreams were all presented sort of like like you would a flashback or, or any kind of out of sequence like we're talking about. Um, and there were a few of them in throughout the throughout the narrative. Um, and they didn't bother me at all because they were really relevant to what was going on with her. Um, and if you uh-huh. were writing somebody who was having um, actual flashbacks or who was working through um, um, like that, the, that Sherlock episode where you kept flashing back to Sherlock's childhood, the moments with his sister, um, that all d- it didn't bother me because it was super relevant to... The story, I, find, what I, find, I think what I find is that most, easily I would say 90% of what I see, especially in fan fiction, what I see done as flashbacks um, doesn't serve any purpose. It doesn't need to be there. Uh, it may be necessary for the story, but it didn't need to be told in that fashion. It could have been told linearly. It's just it, being told as a flashback for what reason I don't know. Um, or it could have just been explained away, or whatever. Just this 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 randomly jumping around time or adding all these flashbacks in doesn't really serve a purpose. Um, but sometimes they sometimes they are important. Sometimes, but when they're when they're tied to something important about the narrative or the plot, they make sense. Like Sydney brought up the movie Memento. Um, Memento was not an easy watch for me, but I did get through it. Um, but the, like the flash the flashes of different times and stuff that you see, those are all really critical to um the story. They're really critical to the movement of the plot. So it it all makes it makes sense the way things the things moved in, moved out as opposed to pulp fiction, which it things did not have to move in the order that they did. I just stop, that's my story stop. and I'm sticking to it. Oh, you motherfuckers. Um Sorry, that kind of popped right into my head. Uh, the only thing I hate worse than a flashback is being told the same is being given the same scene twice from two different points of view.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <But> that.
0: Um... <laughs> But I do wonder sometimes when I'm looking at people's work, um, because I do tend to try out different techniques and different methods of um, storytelling in my fan fiction. You know, it's kind of like my testing ground, my proving ground for, for various concepts um, and characterizations and plot um Methods and, and movements and, and how I move my characters through a story and through a scene. I do try those things out in fan fiction a lot. There's a lot, there's a lot of freedom there. So I do wonder sometimes if I'm looking at somebody's experiment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I'll- laughs> because I do it so much. Um, there was um, the um, the retelling thing. Um, I read a story once where the story is told entirely from one character's point of view, and then the entire story is retold from the other character's point of view. And it really did, I think the author really did an interesting job of having, and it was like the one exception where I kind of, I wasn't mad at it, for there being two when normally I would just kind of be like wanting to stab the screen. I just kind have read something like that myself. But no, this is like back to back scenes in the same story. Totally yeah, different. It points. It is, I think the author just took a different took a different way with it because I think they may have been annoyed by that themselves, where instead of trying to juggle that that POV thing, is they like, said, I'm gonna tell the story from this character's point of view and then I'm gonna tell the story from this other character from the other character in the scene's point of view. And it, it felt it felt like the same story, but you had such a different spin on what was going on that it was really interesting. Um, but but when you... There's especially... Sometimes the doubling is bad enough, but sometimes the half scenes are almost worse. It's like backing up. It's like changing points of view constantly and backing up part way, And <laughs> uh, it's just like, oh, please stop. Uh, and I don't get well, very far usually with stories. You know, so I, I don't... Because... Um I mean that's one of the things you have to that's one of the one of the things you've got to and that could be them figuring it out. I've done that where I've written a scene in two different points of view to figure out which scene um I wanna tell a story in because But this perspective I, is super important. Right, because I had this blip where I've had this I've had it doesn't happen to me often, but sometimes I just stumble on which point of view to tell a story from, or tell a scene from, or whatever. And I'll go and I'll write it, and I'll hate it, and I'll be able to figure out what's wrong with it, and then it'll take me forever to realize it's the point of view. And so sometimes when I'm struggling with a scene, I'll just try writing it in a different point of view to see if that changes something. But I would never present the reader with two different points of view. For me, you know, it's really your character point of view is the most it is the for me, it is the most important decision I make when I'm moving into a new story. How am I gonna tell this story? From whose point of view am I telling it? And that's super important and I'll give you an example of how. Growing up, every year, if you live in America, you probably watched a movie called The Wizard of Oz. And you were a hundred percent in Dorothy's corner. Every time you watched it. Because she was the POV character. You were seeing everything from her point of view. She was far from home. This wicked witch was trying to kill her. But if you flip it over, and you look at it from the wicked witch's point of view, Dorothy invaded Oz, murdered her sister, and stole her inheritance. Took her shoes. Took her her sister's shoes right off of her feet. Off her dead body. (laughs) I'd be like, that little tart took my sister's shoes right off of her dead feet. Her magical shoes, no less. Um, So it's really – POV is – for me, the most important decision I make. How am I going to tell the story? How am I going to? Um, I like the Wicked Witch too. Um, I thought she's a very interesting character. But you know, Dorothy is the is the heroine of of the Wizard of Oz, unless you turn it over and, and look at it from a different point of view, um, and that's important when you're looking at every story, because history um, is it written by the victors. Um, and it really depends on whose POV you're in as to whether or not, um, or who the bad guy is. Because if Harry Potter was told from Voldemort's point of view, Harry Potter would be the bad guy. And plenty of fan fiction writers have worked on that Voldemort and the boy who lived. <laughs> Actually, be more like Voldemort and the boy who wouldn't die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we would be Voldemort and the most awesome how his Lord diary Voldemort got and destroyed. the boy who wouldn't die. And how his diary got destroyed. <laughs> my favorite meme is where it's uh, all the books told from Draco's point of view, and my favorite one is. <laughs> Draco Malfoy and Hagrid's stupid chicken. <laughs> and Draco Malfoy and a year my father's going to hear about. <laughs> uh, anyways, it but, it but it really the the point of view um is super important. It is the most important decision that I make going into a story because it changes everything. Speaking of um, points of view and and characterization, um, I took a break to plot, and so I've got my plot worked out for the rest of Revenant. And um, (coughs) because Revenant... Is In the first season of Atlantis, it's kind of mirroring the plot work I have also done for various other series, um, Sentinels of Atlantis, um, and most um, specifically, Hold My Coffee. And I was thinking about the episode where they find old Elizabeth. And I was trying to decide how that would work out in Hold My Coffee, because um, I hadn't plotted past the Stargate. And I realized it wouldn't be Elizabeth. It would be Meredith. And so, I'm trying to figure out where they would find her, and then I realized she wouldn't have waited for them to find her. She knows when they're coming. Meredith is going to be standing there, right in the right there in the gate room when they get there.
1: Or she's oh, going yeah. to come into
0: the gate room as they get there. Because she's not Elizabeth Weir, and she would know exactly what to do and how to do it and how to get there. And... um i I was thinking about how that would have happened and and how she would have ended up and back in time and that, and I realized that of course John would have still been the pilot, and John would have died and Here is this virgin of Meredith who spent ten thousand years in um in stasis and um to make sure that that he doesn't die again um and she's there, and she's waiting on them to arrive and so um. i and I'm, I made myself cry. <laughs> That's just, just terrible. Just working through that plot, I'm, I'm, I made myself cry because this this is this is a version of Meredith who basically had John die in her arms, and now she's going to turn around and do it in his. Because she stayed awake all that time. Not well, she didn't stay awake, but she woke up when she did. She she programmed that to to wake up so that she would be there when he got there, and she because she. The only thing she had to live for at that point was to make sure she saw him again before she dies. And so I, I, I got really upset and I cried. And my husband <laughs> comes in at this very, at that very moment, and he was like, "What is going on with you?" I said, Meredith's gonna die." <laughs> I got all, I got all <laughs> and he was like, "Oh, honey, you're so crazy." <laughs> and he walked out. But but point of view is very important, and I was trying to pick out how that point of view would go in that story. And it's double, because I have... um, Here is the young Meredith who isn't quite sure how she feels about John Shepard, and here is another version of her who sacrificed her life and lived for 10,000 years, basically, in stasis um, to save them. And this version of Meredith is not confused about how she feels because she's already lost John she lost her John, and um she knows how that felt that that devastation that was there and, and she um everything she did from that moment on was to make sure that it didn't happen again um, and uh it's just it was it was really really difficult to plot. <laughs> Fuck it, I should have stayed right there with the Stargate. <laughs> but I don't know how don't. I'm going to approach that in Revenant, if if I'm, if I'm even going to bring it up in Revenant. I haven't decided. Um, but it was just really, um, I was just trying to figure out, because because when you change the characters like the way I have in Hold My Coffee, it, it changes everything. And that version of Elizabeth Weir... Um, In the canon versions of events, John takes Elizabeth in the jumper and he leaves McKay behind to die. McKay drowns in the city. But that's what happened in the canon version of Stargate. Um, he, he He died trying to save the city. Well, in Hold My Coffee, there is no single fucking way that John would have left Meredith in that gate room. So what happens... Um, from that point forward, what happens, and um, how does that play out? What does this Elizabeth do? What does this Meredith do? Who survives the crash? Who, who survives going back in time, and um, what happens afterwards? Uh, and it, it's it's really you know th- these are the kind of decisions that you have to make when you when you make drastic changes to the characters the way I did and hold my coffee. <clears throat> and in Revenant, and um, point of view, um, becomes super relevant. <clears throat> is, is, is Zelenka there too? Because <clears throat> I put Zelenka in the in the gate room that he made Meredith get on the jumper, and he stayed behind the gate room to try to save it. So that's good that that that's like a complete reversal. I, I like that. Cause I, I wasn't sure, and I didn't want to go back and watch the episode, but, <clears throat> but I probably would have, or at least, look, or at least looked up the um, transcript before I started writing that particular um, episode of um, Hold My Coffee. But it's you know it's how you make those decisions and how you. Um, I'm sorry, Sam. I didn't mean to make you cry. Uh It's just, it's really important because this is. Um, how would this work and who would do it and and what POV am I going to write it in and how's John going to feel watching um, this older this, this old elderly version of Meredith die wow damn I know right I don't know what to do with that Well, man, I kind of want to put like give John a big hug, and it's just. But yeah, I think that's one of the things that um, is important when you're changing, even when you're making little changes to can. Like if you hand wave away um, an episode, it's important to pull on that thread because, um, like, I decided to. Hand wave away the old Elizabeth episode for Atlantis Codex. Um, I just decided I want to deal with it. And um, author hand of those, wave of destiny. The <laughs> hand wave of destiny. We have a Lady holder to thank for that. Um, <laughs> and you know, I when you do that, you have to consider well, what does this change? What does it mean that it's different? Um, does it change anything? Are there ramifications to the, the fact that I did this? So what what are they going to be? It, and sometimes it's even as simple as a little bit of a plot point. If you move an an event from one season to another, that could be small, but is it small? It might be huge. Um, you know, some, sometimes we don't appreciate the way people the 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 writers do things in canon, but sometimes some things. Um, some events, because it happen in canon and the way, in the order that they do, because um, they make more sense then. Um, so it's just like you have to just be careful when you're, um, like there's things that happen in seasons, like NCIS, there are things that happen later seasons, um, NCIS, that you can't just easily plug into, the say, the first, first season of NCIS. They just don't make sense. Some of the events that went down with Ziva don't make sense going down with Kate um, because Kate's a completely different person. So you can't just necessarily plug and play some canon events into a different set, a different cast because everybody <laughs> behaved differently back when Kate was still alive. Gibbs behaved differently. Tony was different. T- McGee was different. McGee was still a real boy back then. Um so it's just you have to be careful if you're you know did, is the event innocuous that you're pulling you know what does it to meet change what does it mean that you're moving these events around um, and, I it's, it's just, and, and I think it's just and I think it's just that's the point is just think it through think through what it means and in your case you thought it through and you gave yourself you know an afternoon of tears <laughs> I all did. Of it was terrible. But you know, sometimes you gotta keep pulling on those threads and say, what does it mean that I've made this change? What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? And what does that ripple out like? What does it look like? And that's just applying. You know, we just that's that's just working on that suspension of disbelief thing. Um, because I mean, no, well, there was that has moment to, where I was thinking to myself, oh my God, this version of Elizabeth would not have done that. No, she, she would not she. have. She would have gone back to Earth with the, with the rest of the ancients. She wouldn't have stayed behind to save the city. No, not at all. <clears throat> um, That's Lady Holder. Lady, yeah, Lady Holder Holder's is riding um, the RT where Tony leaves before Kate dies. Yeah. That changes everything because if Tony's not there, then there's automatically room for Ziva and Ari won't have to kill anybody. Yeah. This is right where our brains Because <laughs> that's like, my headcanon. Oh, now now Ari doesn't have to kill a member of the team to make room for Ziva. Because <laughs> that's my headcanon that, that Ari killed Kate because um, his father wanted Ziva on the team. Oh, yeah, completely. That um, I now my head canon is that Ziva wanted Tony killed, um, but Ari had a a boner for making Gibbs mad and thought it would hurt to, more to kill a woman, so he killed Kate. I have to. I. Although I could also see Ziva not wanting the female competition. Yeah, and seeing. Okay I can control him with his Daddy complex And I can control him with his dick complex I can control him with his nerd complex I can't control her Yeah She has to go Hmm. (laughs) That really annoys me now that I've thought about it Yeah, that definitely is my headcanon That that Ziva um, is complicit in Kate's death um, Which is why I have brought up in a few stories That I think she's complicit in Kate's death um, More overtly than um, just taking advantage of it Because she definitely profiled the team um, but I think I think it's pretty clear that um, she was too poised to leave Mossad um, for that not to have been in the works before. And she was sent there to kill Aries, so she knew she was joining that team. So I felt like she set that whole thing up. I, I mean, it's always canon thought that she- the writers set that up on NCIS and then just dropped it. Just dropped that thread. That it was already that they were threading that into the plot of the episodes, and then they dropped it. Probably based on how Ziva's character was received by the majority of the fan base at the time. Because a lot of people liked Ziva. I don't understand it. But they did. But if Ziva hadn't been well received by the audience and the ratings that took a spike, then I think we would have seen that, that thread being pulled. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Now, I have... Um, someone mentioned that there are... Well, actually, I won't tell somebody's Plot Bunny on the air. That's really rude. But um, in Heathen, um, I have... Um, Gibbs is a, a sentinel, of course. Um, so the whole airy thing never happened. Diva joined the team when Jenny became um, the director just because Jenny owed her a favor. Um but the whole area thing never went down because Gibbs is a sentinel who had his territory invaded by – he killed him. Gibbs snapped his neck right in front of Kate. And Kate is angry with Gibbs and has never forgiven him for killing Arya. So Kate is on the team and she's a little hostile to Gibbs after all this time still um, at the start of the story, at the start of Heathen, because um, she feels like Gibbs um, kind of kills without remorse, which he does, and he's a sentinel. They don't have a lot of remorse about killing people who are threatening their tribe. Um, and Aerie was threatening his tribe, so he killed him um, right in front of Kate. So that's a Black um, and white. I really appreciate that. I'm looking forward to this read. <laughs> so it was a very black and white thing. So, so Gibbs is explaining, the, he's explaining to Tony the tension between Gibbs and Kate is because um, Gibbs killed Aerie. Um, and Tony thinks it's ridiculously naive that Kate would have thought that Gibbs wouldn't have killed Airy. Um, But so that I just I just dealt with because I was thinking because when you because when you take Tony out of the equation of NCIS, you take Tony off of Gibbs team. Nobody's alive. Everybody's dead. Okay, McGee, Kate, dead. Gibbs, dead. Everybody's dead. Tony saved basically everybody on that team at one point or another. Um, so. I had to figure out. So, and the big, the big threat to you know, Kate and McGee is Airy. And my way of dealing with the fact I didn't want them both to be dead in Heathen, but I wanted them to be. And, and McGee's not an agent in um, Heathen um, because he didn't have Tony to to sort of soften him or to harden him up and get him into being a. He didn't make. He didn't make agent under. He's an analyst. That's the way I wrote it. Um, but he's on the team. But he works as an analyst, and he, but he sort of part-time in cybercrime but the way the way I dealt dealt with the fact that Tony was on the team to save them all from Aerie was to have Gibbs kill Aerie the moment Gibbs met him as opposed to having that whole Moby Dick thing get drawn out for a season and a half if you put various people in Gerald's place, you get a different response. If Abby had been shot, Arie would have died in that morgue. In canon. Yeah. If Ducky had been shot, but they shot Gerald, who was a you know a minor character. Um, <clears throat> but if he had shot Ducky or Abby, he'd be dead. If Tony had been the one to respond, I think that Ari would have got a double tap because I that that's how cops are trained to respond. Pop, pop. <laughs> you know? Because mm-hmm. Gibbs isn't trained as a cop. Ducky isn't a cop. Kate wasn't a cop. But, I, you know, Dark had this idea of Tony killing um, Ari. And I do think that that would be like an automatic response for a cop in that situation. It's a double tap. Um, because that's just how they're trained. In, in moments where people are in grave danger, they respond with the appropriate force, and the appropriate force would have been put to an Aries chest. Right, and cops don't aim for your limbs. That is movie, that's movie and TV nonsense. Um, and there, because there's that scene in, um, I think it's in Aaliyah, when um, Ziva throws Tony on the ground and pointing the gun, she's she just went all the ways that Tony didn't have to kill Michael. And she's holding the gun. She's pointing it in his leg. they could have shot him in the leg, or he could have shot him in the shoulder, because Michael was out of control and charging him. And he says, "You could have shot him in the leg. You could have shot him." The... And it's like, no, that is not what you do. That is not what anybody, anyone trained, does in that kind of situation when their life is in danger. Is shoot to wound. They aren't trained that way. They're trained to shoot for the center of the chest, largest target possible is to inflict the maximum damage and stop the stop stop the threat. That's what they're trained to do. And that's what Tony would do, and that's what he did. That's what he did in uh, in that episode um, where he killed Michael, and it's what he would do in that morgue if he were there. If there was a threat, he put it down. Yeah, because he is a cop, and that makes a difference because he's literally the only cop on the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Michael was a stone cold killer. I mean, there was no doubt. I mean, it was his, it, it was him or Tony. So I do think I, it's appropriate that shoot him in the leg. What well, you don't shoot? <laughs> okay, I'll shoot you in the leg. Sure. Yeah, as a whole, that whole Ziva Ziva having that whole discussion. It wasn't a discussion. She was having a tantrum all over Tony about um, you know you could have shot him in the leg. It was like no, he couldn't. What are you talking about? He was going to, Tony was lucky, even though, because Tony was, I mean, they, the writers had a moment where they went, you cannot put Tony against the Kedon assassin and have Tony come out of it alive. So we're going to have to make Michael drunk. We've got to level the odds a little bit. And that's how we're going to do it, is we're going to level, we're going to level the odds, we're going to make Michael a little, we're going to make Tony a little bit lucky, and we're going to make Michael drunk. And that's going to even things out enough that, that it's plausible that Tony's going to come out of this alive. Um, and so they worked, they suspended your disbelief so that you, you bought it. And I did. I bought the scene. I bought what happened. But what I didn't buy was Ziva going, you could have shot him in the leg. No, What? A crazy no. man who's trying, with all that training, who's trained to assassinate people, is trying to kill him, has broken his arm, and he can shoot him in the leg?
1: In a yes, high Sarah, pressure you situation? didn't have
0: to crush the Terminator's skull. <laughs> right. <laughs> you could have just pressed him till he couldn't move.
1: Yeah, Mike, Michael had a big right? piece
0: of glass sticking out of him. He got right up off the ground and came right at Tony. <clears throat> if I remember that scene correctly. But anyway, it, it's yeah, just, it was... It, 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 it does reveal a lot about Ziva's character um, and, and how they wrote her, is that she was deeply unqualified to be in law enforcement. Yeah. We knew that from the moment she fired that weapon in the in the... In the <laughs> in the metal box shipping container yeah this is not a woman who's had any kind of gun training responsible gun training anyway which is really infuriating that they would write a woman who is Mossad um who's supposed to be um very proficient in such an fucking incompetent way that's just really what That, 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 that they would even write that And and even before she was in the box, she didn't hit anything. That was one of the things that came up in the episode was that Tony was the only one who hit anybody. All that bullet flying is that Ziva missed everybody she shot at. It's really, now that I think about it, that is really fucking annoying that they would ride her so incompetent with a weapon when she's supposed to be Mossad. Yeah. My eye's twitching. (laughs) Fuck you, NCIS writers. (laughs) (laughs) But... Well, but Tony, the NCIS writers were very inconsistent too, because Tony was alternately a great shot and a horrible shot. So it was, it was, it was weird. I mean, there's multiple, multiple. Anytime there's a firefight, Tony was usually a good shot. The, in Requiem when he saves gives life I mean at a run he filed he, he emptied his clip and killed all those guys, some of them headshots while running. That's impressive marksmanship. Um, and then um, in box in, he's the one he, he he hit he's the one, the only one who hit any of the terrorists when they were running for cover into that firing pretty much blindly running into that box. So he's a good shot, and yet whenever they're on the firing range, he never managed to hit anything. Which I think, which is why, which is why fanfiction writers tend to assume we see these inconsistencies and assume that he's missing on purpose on the range, rather than getting lucky in the field. Because the thing those is, options, is, he right? can't always miss on the range because he has to qualify in order right. to carry a weapon. So he's playing it up for an audience. Kate, McGee, Ziva, whoever. But he has to actually qualify to carry a fucking weapon. Which means he's perfectly capable of hitting a target on the range. He just doesn't do it in front of anybody. Right. Which is kind of the direction fanfiction writer that He's doing it on purpose to placate the egos of the newbies. And it, that establishes something about Tony's character, right? It tells you something about him if that's the direction, if that's how you interpret it. And it's kind of become... Um, well accepted fanon that that that's the way he is even though there's not a lot in canon that supports that that he downplays his own abilities, I mean you see this, this is almost ubiquitous in fan fiction, not quite but close that he downplays his own abilities um, to prop up the new people that it's very deliberate, that he's shoring them up that he's training them, kind of using himself as a foil for them to to work against, Um, which is a valid training technique, he just It's like he's not quite skilled at um, um, transitioning them away from out of that mode where they start disrespecting him instead of recognizing the training he's given them. So it's it's, but it's become you see that in so much fan fiction. um, I use it a lot. That that's what he's doing doing it quite deliberately. Use it because it has to be that way. Because otherwise. It doesn't make any sense because if Tony isn't that way, then Gibbs is an incompetent bastard—not just a bastard, but an incompetent one. Yes. Yeah. So we've made it. We've we've created in fanfix, We've created this narrative about Tony that a large percentage of us accepted and used that explained that fits the facts um that we have um he, he has to, to have designed. a degree because of his job he can't be in this particular job without this much experience and this degree or a degree at this level you know these things have to have happened um in reality for him to be where he is right so we, we've created this explanation for the why, what Tony's doing, and why he acts the way he acts, and that he's not quite the bozo that he pretends to be, and that he's deflecting, or he's doing a lot of this stuff deliberately, that it's carefully constructed to, um, you know, either give them the place on the team, or let the help help them. Um, in McGee's case, we usually use the foil that he's the foil for McGee to be able to toughen up against, to be able to stand up to Gibbs. If he can t- stand up to Tony, then he can stand up to Gibbs. These so kind of transitioning, you know, McGee into being able to get tougher. So it, it's all—it's all—it's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's all makes a lot of sense. So that's why we do it um, because it makes more sense than what we're getting in the show. Um, and actually, the funny thing is, it makes so much sense that if you veer if you veer away from kind of this sort of fanon notion, you kind of have to kind of reconstruct the whole thing. And then you got to put a lot of. You know, then you really need. You can't just. You can't just pick and choose. You know, you can't just pick up all the square pegs and try to put them and put them all. In, you've got all round holes. You know, you just you. It just doesn't work that way. You, if you if you're going to reconstruct, you've got to reconstruct. While we're on the point of point of view, and animal characters. And rational behavior and logical structure in your story—it is like literally 99% of the time a bad idea to give your animal a POV. Yes. Sometimes it's amusing. I really, I really enjoyed that one chapter of um, Bourbon and Aspirin universe where it's Zuma's POV. I really enjoyed it. But it was basically outside the the main thrust of her narrative. It it wasn't um part of her plot. It was just a little side vanity thing, you know, and I would do that too. Um even a side Yeah, it is a side story. Um um even a demon in like a dark materials crossover, I would I wouldn't personally give a demon a point no. of view, personally. Um, because that... Not um, unless my POV character was unconscious and it was their demon. Um, and it... There was a thrusting of a plot point there. Like, if I, if I have to do this, this, and this, my my character is injured. Like, um, like when Tony's knocked unconscious um, and he's hurt in um, Ascendant and Keaton comes for Gibbs that that scene is in Gibb's POV. Um, I wasn't tempted to structure it from Keaton's point of view, but I could have. Because at that point, Keaton would have been, and his POV would have been part of the plot. He would have been necessary to, to move the plot. Here is my person, and they're hurt, and I need to go find, who do I find? I need to go find Gibb's. And so that would have – but I moved it a different direction, and I did it from Tony's point of view, finding Keaton with him, and then Keaton going to Gibbs, and it being Gibbs' point of view. But I could have structured it so that it was from Keaton's point of view. But it's really unnatural for me to write in an animal's point of view. And for for me, the the issue I have with animal point of view most of the time um, is that the only – about the only time – when I'm okay with it, and I've been okay with it in a story where I just kind of where it didn't even if i well sometimes I'm entertained by it, but i, it, I it's, there's problems that still jump out at me um, because I haven't read the the sort of the omaki that you're talking about in the bourbon and Astron universe so i have I don't have any yeah, it's a novelty it. little story, and i I don't mean that um vanity Beat to be an insult at all. I don't mean it to be an insult at all. I am, I am all about sometimes writing a vanity scene just, just to amuse myself. And that's what I think that little Zuma thick is. It's just an amusement for the author. Um, <clears throat> which it is, and it's adorable. Yeah. Well, when you're but, writing, if, if someone is truly writing an omniscient POV, you can include more of the animal. You're not in the animal's POV because you're in an omniscient POV, and this is one of the things that's why I think people don't understand omniscient POV. Um, but you can get more of the animal. You can even you can even include animal thoughts if you're writing in an omniscient point of view. So the the few times I I've read something with an animal it worked just because it was in an omniscient point of view, and it was just the omniscient the omniscient narrator was conveying what was going on with the animal. Um, it was just like a side, you know, just a side note. And the cat was this about what her owner was doing, and it made perfect sense because the omniscient narrator knows everything, including what's going on with the animals. So it's fine. Um, but but I hate most people, most people don't know how to write an omniscient narrator. Most people just head hop, and what you're doing is head hopping into an animal, and it is very difficult. So what most people do is well they're writing third person limited. And they're writing an animal's point of view. And there is just no narrative for me that reads right for an animal. I'm like, no. No. I read a story once that has a, has a brief period. A brief, and the author did a pretty good job of scaling down their language um, to write a hellhound. Um, they changed their language. They changed their, the tone. Their sentence structure got a lot more choppy. Everything was there was there was no dialogue because you're in a hellhound's point of view, um, but it's still there were words that I'm like, how does a hellhound know what the fuck that is? And you just kept thinking it. And It was actually the more she changed the way she wrote her narrative to accomplish writing in a hellhound's point of view, the more jarring certain words were because like, how does a hellhound say that? Think that? Know that? What? You know? It's like what? So it's <laughs> it's it's a weird line. To walk, to 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 go and give a an animal a point of view. Bramwell's POV would be this: Harry's not here. Harry's not here. I'm hungry. Harry's not here. I Harry's food. not Oh, I'm hungry. I have a hard enough time giving a little child a point of view. Oh, there's that weird creature. Maybe she'll take me to Harry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's Harry. Funny, that is Bramwell's point of view, right there. I'm hungry. It we're wouldn't last for very long. <laughs> But for me You know For me writing a child Like that It's like well kids Don't speak like that If I were writing A three year old What a three year old Say (laughs) They would say When can I have My milk and cookies What do they think When's daddy getting home I don't want to write In a three year old's Point of view (laughs) No No You know So it's just I'm this also could be a function of the fact we've talked before that I go I have a really deep narrative so I I sit there I I get really I can't I can't write a three year old's point of view <laughs> because the I would pool's try not to deep get, enough yet. Yeah, I was like I would try to get deep into the third uh, third three year old's narrative and I'm just like there's nothing there there's no narrative for a three year old <laughs> it's like milk and cookies nap I don't want a nap Cheerios. I mean there's nothing there Cheerios potty nap. <laughs> Dora. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe a little bit of Winnie, um, um, Winnie the Pooh with their parents' no. <laughs> <But clears> throat> throat> Oh my goodness, my dog is outside losing his mind. Which one? Kronos. Which is um, unfortunate because he um, recently um, revealed his ability to howl. Like a wolf. (laughs) He barks at me when I don't pet him. I've never... (laughs) I have never had a dog that would actually reprimand you for not petting them. I mean, it is like serious how fucking dare you not pet me, Bark he <laughs> stop now. Um, he doesn't like other dogs to be near the fence. He doesn't like people near be near the fence unless they've come to pet him. He doesn't like turtles or rabbits. Or, opossum, or squirrels, or birds, <laughs> butterflies. I've I've caught him barking at a butterfly. <laughs> my his, my sister had this Maine coon for a while that would. Um, I don't remember if it was male or female. You think I remember these things, but I don't. And I think it. Oh, it was a female, and she would come in, and she would when she. And you didn't mess with her when she didn't want it. When she wanted it, she would come up to you, and she would flop over backwards, I kid you not, backwards, across your lap, arms and legs spread wide, looking a little like a crime scene victim, like you're about to do the little chalk outline of her, across your lap, and this was the cue to brush her belly. And she was a huge cat. So this was brush my belly pose. And if you didn't, the claws would come out. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, because uh, the first time she did to me, because I wasn't around. I'm actually allergic to cats, so I wasn't. I was unprepared for this behavior. So the first time this little cat again, like, was plop, I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? Brush her belly really quick. I was like, why? She'll scratch you. <laughs> like, yay! <laughs> You're gonna get fucked up if you don't do it. She's <laughs> gonna get real. But yeah, no, he's he's adjusting. Um, but yeah, um, I might have to go out and get him in a few minutes if he doesn't stop because it's like midnight here, (coughs) we're down to a minute and 41 seconds. Um, I think that, um, for me, an animal personality is is almost entirely organic. I don't know um, how they're going to be until I get into – now, I know what events they're going to take part in when I'm plotting, but I don't always know how they're going to to be personality-wise until I'm in the writing. That's just how I do it. I would say most of the most of the personality does develop organically. Although I will, um, a lot of them, um, and the more screen time they're going to have, I will. I do have like little mini character part profiles in them about what I think their personality is like. But you know, what they say you know, the plan never uh, survives engagement with the enemy. So, and it never has. Yeah, I really didn't plan for um, Rowena to have such a problem with the Deruda that I introduced. I don't know where that came from because that really wasn't in my plan. But and I just decided when I was writing that she wasn't going to like um, Anari, and um, that's just that's just what happened. <laughs> didn't like her, and they don't. Yeah, you know, they don't like each other, and it's. Um, you know, I have no It It, it wasn't planned, it's just what happened. Anyways, I'll catch you guys later because we're out of time. <clears throat> night. Second night.